It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So what's this news I've been hearing about Florida? 5,000 plus cases in one day. Huh? Yo, what are they doing out there? Jeez, they're, they're buckets is what they're doing there. <laughs> Listen, all I know is I'm worried you to stay close. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip. A podcast for diverse millennials to help make sense of COVID-19 and the decisions made by our political leaders. Stay tuned as we parse through the weekly events and announcements that impact us. Shall we? Let's do it. So we know we don't know everything about COVID since it's a new virus that continues to evolve over time. That's still true of this past week, as we're seeing that COVID cases continue to rise, particularly for those under 30, while slowing down for everyone else. Hmm. I wonder why this is. <laughs> well, Dr. Teresa Tan is saying it, it might be because they, or I guess I should say we, right? We yeah. started wearing less and going out more. Other experts are also pointing out that as we've now gotten long-term care cases under control, cases in other groups will make up a greater portion of cases. And finally, there's the fact that several provinces have also loosened the rules around who can get a test, meaning more kids and teens are likely getting swabbed. But there's a real cause for concern, right? Because on Tuesday, Ontario recorded its first COVID-19 death in someone under 20. According to the Public Health Agency of Canada, The median age of COVID cases in Canada has been dropping since the beginning of April, reaching the age of 40, as of June 19th. And the number of cases in every age group has been declining steadily for that same two-month period, except for the people who are under 20. People under 20 accounted for 14% of all new cases in Canada last week, up from 11% the week before. And people aged 29 and under account for about a third of all new cases across the country in the past week. In Ontario, people under 20 made up 10% of COVID cases during the week of June 7, up from 2.7% during the week of March 29, according to figures provided by Public Health Ontario. At the same time, the proportion of older people testing positive is on the decline. People 80 and older made up 5.6% of cases during the week of June 7. That's down from 15% the week of March 29. So, so hold on. Does, what does this mean for kids and school? Well, as Dr. Ashley Tweet, an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health says, we don't know. Not much is known about how easily kids can get and give the virus since most countries have kept schools and daycare shut. Dr. Tom Lacroix agrees, saying, we're making a lot of policy decisions on a group in our population who have really gone under-tested and under-reported. This is really kind of a scary thing, right? Because we think about children and more than other populations, even, you know, elderly folks who are also vulnerable people, and we see them and we really just want to protect them. Mm. But then I'm sure anyone who's a listener of this podcast who 
is a parent of a young child will remember that anytime a cold got in the house, lice got in the house, pink eye got in the house, it came from the Ute Dem. <laughs> your kid went to daycare, went to school, and brought that back in your house. I appreciate what Dr. Ashley is saying, but if we're basing this on other communicable you know, illnesses and diseases, kids can absolutely pass it along, right? So I think it's, it's better that we're being safe rather than sorry and keeping schools shut and in the city of Toronto, keeping childcare centers as socially distanced as, as they can. I, th- I think we're doing the right thing. Yeah, let's hope that our children, our youth, are not complicit in the possibly eventual second wave. Continuing along with our very own developing story. You remember that from last week, Patience? Yeah, let's go. Well, not the best news. A third migrant worker has died. Juan Lopez Chaparro did not speak English and had no phone in this country. His family had no idea he was ill. Because of how sick he was due to COVID, he needed to be sedated and he never woke up. He worked at Scotland Growers, which is a massive farming operation two hours southwest of Toronto that describes itself as, quote, North America's farm stand. It also had a long history of complaints and is the site of one of Ontario's largest recorded COVID-19 outbreaks where 199 workers have tested positive for the virus. We encourage you to read about Juan's ordeal in The Star. We've included it in our feed for you. It will further underscore why we need an overhauled temporary foreign worker system so that Black and brown people don't die just for trying to make a living. Canada ranks among the worst in OECD countries for long-term care deaths. Just over 80% of Canada's known COVID deaths were in nursing or retirement homes as of May 25th, nearly double, double the average for countries in other OECD countries. We were worse than Spain, fam. The report was published by Canada's Healthcare Stats Agency on Thursday, and it highlighted how Canada's long-term care sector was set up to fail from the jump with fewer nurses and personal support workers, older residents, and less coherent regulation than in some other countries. The tragedy that unfolded inside Canada's long-term care homes during the the first wave of coronavirus has prompted Quebec to call a public inquiry and Ontario to launch an independent commission. So are we going to start acting like it and immediately work toward concrete, sustainable solutions to fix this? I hope so. I hope so as well. I think that we are moving. I was listening to somebody say that politicians respond to things when they are kind of given some attention and long-term care homes, both retirement homes and public nursing homes have been at the center of the COVID conversation. And I think that that will result in in what I hope is at least one of the three following things. First is a union union and a regulatory body for personal support workers who support people who are, who are elderly, so people who work in gerontology. Mm-hmm. Um, second, I hope that we will you know, have a little bit more pay equity within personal support workers, making sure that some of them you know, don't earn minimum wage, although again, we, we need to revisit what our minimum wage looks like in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and third, if there are uh, the first two things, there should be less personal support workers working at multiple centers in order to make a living. That's been one of the, the chief parts of, of COVID spreading is that a lot of the workers 
are being exposed to COVID at one center, but then have to do their shift at another center and then take that with them. So it's really convoluted. I really hope that we will start seeing some concrete sustainable solutions. Yes. And it should go without saying that the public inquiry in Quebec and the independent commission in Ontario better reflect what you just said. Moving on to politics, uh, Andrew Scheer is a huge bullshitter. Despite his calls for more parliamentary oversight during the pandemic, the Conservatives have actually had the worst attendance record, an average of 47% for the COVID-19 committee meetings. Now, let's, let's take a listen at what Andrew Scheer has said historically. Ready for this? Quote, Canada's democratic institutions should never be treated as an inconvenience. That's what he said on May 25th during a debate on extending the suspension of regular sittings. Here's another one. Quote, the House is an essential service to the country and we, its members, are essential workers. End quote. Yet, the Green Party had the best attendance with its caucus averaging appearances of 95% of the time over the 21 meetings. They were followed by independent MP Jody Wilson-Raybould at 86%, the NDP at 85%, the Liberals at 76%, and the Bloc, even the Bloc, at 73%. (laughs) Essentially, every progressive or progressive-looking party, they're the ones who actually care about being there. I mean, look, I'm just going to, here's the reality. Conservatives don't care about the institution of parliament. They don't. They showed that the last time they were in power by proroguing parliament twice when they felt they were going to lose the election. What they really want is to score cheap political points through the House, something that's harder to do in a pandemic when all eyes are on Justin Trudeau. I couldn't have said it better myself. I've always felt like the conservatives in Canada are about smaller government. And part of the the way that they kind of advocate for smaller government is by not participating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I mean, who wants that? Especially right now in the midst of all of this uncertainty, nobody wants a conservative in government right now. So it's okay. They don't have to show up. Stay at home, fam. I mean, basically, like, you know what? You guys are irrelevant anyway, so this exactly. I'm sorry. Uh, you guys can keep doing what you're doing, I guess. On to education, which is important and is becoming more important still. Ontario's progressive conservative government unveiled its updated elementary math curriculum this week. Yeah, I saw that. I was kind of skeptical, but what's it looking like? Well, under the new curriculum, kids will learn how to code starting in grade one. They'll start by learning how to sequence and will maybe even learn how to program a caterpillar. The curriculum also includes financial literacy for all elementary school grades. For example, in grade four, students will learn about various payment methods. They'll learn about the different ways to transfer money, including e-transfers in grade five and financial planning in grade six. Students in grade five are expected to learn how to add fractions as opposed to grade seven in the previous curriculum. A ministry official said students struggle with fractions and need more time understanding them. I I can totally understand that. The province also said it was canceling standardized testing in reading, writing, and math for students in grade three and six for the coming school year as the new math curriculum is adopted. The government said the new curriculum will be mandatory for the coming school year and teachers will receive resources and training as early as this month. Oh, okay. What's the response been from teachers, parents, and other observers? You know what? People are basically saying it's a good change. It's a, no, it's actually a great change to the curriculum. But they're also annoyed that teachers weren't consulted, which is unfortunately a norm for this government. And as a result, there's not enough time to prep teachers and kids to be successful. For example, Sam Hammond, president of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, said his members aren't opposed to improvements to the curriculum, obviously. 
but he argued they need more time, especially when educators are already experiencing challenges with their students due to, oh, I don't know, COVID-19. Mary Reed, an assistant professor of math education at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, said, so far so good, but time-wise, it's bad. Districts are already working so hard just to figure out what's going to happen in September. The last thing they need is a whole new initiative like this. So this is another example of how politics and political decisions and policy changes aren't necessarily made at certain times to benefit the end user. They're made for the biggest boom, right? So I think, this is my personal belief, that the Ontario Conservatives made this change to the curriculum, including financial planning, because it is so evident with the onset of COVID that a little bit more financial planning, perhaps, but also a a better kind of system of pay equity across the province would have left people in a better spot. So I think they're, they're actually taking advantage of, first of all, the fact that there's lots of attention on what the government is announcing. But second of all, that a lot of people are scared about what's gonna happen when CERB ends and are scared now that they don't have the disposable income that they used to have. And perhaps they don't know how to teach their children how to do that. So I think they're really capitalizing on this moment. It isn't about the teachers and about the kids, really. It's it's about how can they look great in this moment? I don't know, do you disagree? No, all I heard just now is fuck them kids. <laughs> I mean, but it, it, it isn't, because if you were really thinking about the kids, wouldn't you have done a more consultative process where you spoke to the teachers and were like, how do you do this now? How can you incorporate this into existing lesson planning? Like, no, you don't think so? I mean, that's what I would say. Like the coding, I, I, I get like, that coding is probably a, an entirely new unit. But the the financial planning, I think that was just to kind of throw in there to be like, yeah, the conservatives know what real practical skills are about. So I mean, I don't know about that, because I think that, um, to be honest, I'm forgetting exactly what Mitzi Hunter did when she was education minister. But there were some changes that were brought in from from 2018 or even before that. I think it was 2016 or 2017 that were basically just built upon by this government. And did they acknowledge that these were built on existing plans? Are you asking me if the conservatives acknowledge that somebody else did some of their work for them? Really? (laughs) Moving on to the economy. Fitch Ratings has downgraded Canada's credit rating to a double A plus from a triple A rating citing the federal government's move to borrow about a quarter of a trillion dollars to prop the economy up during this pandemic lockdown. The agency says that while it's downgrading Canada's rating, it expects Canada's debt to GDP ratio to stabilize over the medium term before the economy starts recovering with the help of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Fitch predicts Canada's pandemic response will increase its consolidated gross general government debt to 115% of GDP in 2020, up from 88% in 2019. Fitch said it expects Canada's debt to GDP ratio to stabilize at about 120 to 121% sometime in 2022 or between 2022 and 2024. The report said Fitch has confidence in Canada's economic recovery in 2021 though, because of the advanced, well-diversified and high income nature of its national economy. 
It also cites Canada's political stability, strong governance and policies that have, quote, delivered steady growth and low inflation. But effectively, but effectively, we need to articulate a plan to manage Canada's post-COVID-19 spending in order to receive a higher rating from Fitch once again. You know, I just took a look at the Fitch ratings for other countries. Hmm. And although, obviously, we want to be AAA, I do think that a number of countries have kind of experienced a drop in, in their ratings. So this isn't anything for folks to be too, too concerned about. Uh, to give you an idea of who still has a, a AAA rating, we have, you know, the EU, Denmark, Germany, Luxembourg. Of course, Luxembourg. I'm sorry, I'm laughing about Luxembourg because they're literally have like 100 people uh, and they're all so <laughs> old. <laughs> anyway, so this is a good indicator of where we're going, right? We have, a, we have a long way to climb out of this hole that we've gotten ourselves into with um, people losing their jobs and the economy just really has, has taken a, a little bit of a face plant. So we got to, you know, start businesses, start employing people and really build this country back up to AAA status. Yeah, the reality is that even with the debt that we've incurred now, it's nowhere near what we've incurred post-Reconstruction after the Second World War. We've been here before and we took care of it, so we can do it again. I'm not worried about this as much, again, because rather than a true recession, this is more so policy imposed, right? So as companies start to open back up, as people go back to work, the economy will rebound. We also know, for example, that with because of COVID-19, there's a lot of focus for, um, e, for, for e-commerce, right? E-commerce is booming right now. So there's probably going to be a huge influx of internet-based companies that are going to be generating some, some revenue for the government, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I just, I really don't think it's a problem. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. For those collecting CERB, make sure you're planning for the eventual tax you'll owe on the benefit come tax time. Or you might be in for an unpleasant surprise. That's what Yves Jehu, the parliamentary budget officer, is saying. He's pretty concerned. Basically, he's worried that most Canadians may have missed the fact that this is a taxable income, and therefore, the more you take, the more tax you'll have to pay back. The tax will depend on, or the tax owed, will depend on our individual income and tax bracket. For 2020, no federal tax is owed on the first $13,229 in income, uh, to put into perspective, CERB gives recipients $12,000 total. So let's say that's all you get for all of 2020, then okay, you won't have to pay tax. But earnings above that amount, up to $48,535, are taxed at 15%. The next tax bracket collects 20.5% on income between $48,535 and $97,069. So basically, as a rule of thumb, 
The PBO thinks CERB recipients will owe an average of $252 for every $2,000 received in benefit payments. You ready to pay up, fam? I mean, yeah. The way I see it, it's, you know, there's a whole ass year. <laughs> there's a whole ass year to repay the money, and the economy should be picking up after September unless there's a second wave of COVID. So I think I'll have the time to sort myself out. But there's some good news, too. Yep. Here's a snapshot. Unfortunately, real estate for sellers, retailers, and the job market overall have been hit pretty damn hard. But when it comes to real estate, a slowdown could mean it's the right time for some buyers to take advantage of a drop in property values. Mortgage owners with variable rates are being held too, since COVID has prompted lenders to cut mortgage rates to record lows. For example, lowestrates.ca, which is a site that compares mortgages, insurance, and loans, is seeing a massive 326% uptick in refinancing. Bike sales are booming and bike lanes are experiencing a rebirth too. Liquor and bear sales are up 17.6% to 2.4 billion from just above 2 billion before the pandemic started. Online sales are booming as well. So here's a quote from Jennifer Hargreaves. She's an entrepreneur and founder of recruitment agency, Talent. One positive trend emerging from COVID-19 is it has turned flexible work from something that, com that companies used to pretend to care about into a must-have for any firm hoping to thrive long-term. I used to hate that there weren't more companies taking the ability to work from home seriously. I'm happy this is forcing them to do things differently. Yeah, I think COVID-19 has forced some companies into the 21st century. I know that uh, a number of, of different folks who are kind of in my industry in HR uh, and in construction, actually, for that matter, have been talking about how um, now we can have conversations about people who have mobility disabilities working for us because they'll be working from home. Uh, and we can kind of start talking about, you know, better supporting mothers who have young children who also may need a couple of days from home. So mm -hmm. absolutely, this has changed things like forever. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's amazing that there is a lot of really, really, really good news coming out of, of COVID-19. Here's some bad news, though. According to a study by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Policing the Pandemic Mapping Project, co-founded at U of T and the University of Ottawa, police and bylaw officers issued at least 10,000 tickets or charges related to the pandemic between April 1 and June 15th. The value of the fines was more than $13 million. Quebec accounted for 77% of fines. Ontario saw 18% and Nova Scotia 3%. But there's a problem. Want to guess what it is? Is it that marginalized and other vulnerable groups tended to bear the brunt of police and bylaw action? Why, yes. It's as if you have a heightened sense of awareness because you educated yourself on social issues. Report co-author Abby Deshman said large data gaps exist, but it's clear discriminatory police action occurred in the context of COVID-19. Black and Indigenous people, the homeless, and recent immigrants were among those targeted. Cops also singled out same-sex couples by questioning them about their relationship while ignoring heterosexual couples. So here's the thing. I'm learning that BC successfully used messaging and other public health strategies to encourage compliance with the health measures instead of punitive measures. Maybe we should be trying to do a little bit more of that over here in Ontario. I just don't know if that'd be enough. What do you think? This is, this is fascinating. As you've just outlined for us, this is so layered. So the first thing is that we have decided that fines are the best way to, to change behavior. That's the first 
what I would argue problem here, right? Because to your point, BC didn't do that. BC had an exhaustive public education campaign to convince people that it's in their own best interest rather than punishment type of model that we have used in some of the other provinces. And then there's the, the kind of classic problem of vulnerable people, people who, when you look at them, you know that you can have more power than them. And by, by you, I mean white people who tend to be the enforcers of these things. So people who maybe don't speak English, people who maybe it's two men in a relationship and you, you automatically assume that they are not from the same household and thus they are not social distancing. All of these things kind of arise from there. So this, this, what, what I love about COVID-19, and, and, and that's such a weird thing for me to say out loud, but what I love about COVID-19 is that it has really taken a mirror up and shown us who we are. I think that fines, the COVID fines, can are, are a perfect example or a perfect manifestation of some of the ailments of our society. Mm-hmm. I agree with 100% with one of the things you just said, I mean, with everything, but in particular, COVID being a really good thing for society. COVID and Trump. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I'll, I'll agree with one of the two. One of the two, the two of the best things that could have happened in this time, right? So last week was weather, this week is wildlife. Last week, Curtis, I said that um, COVID-19 is like the book of Revelation in the Bible. And this week it continues, it continues, fam. So now since we're home, you know, we here in, in Ontario, we're noticing, you know, foxes in Scarborough and bears in Markham, both of which, you know, aren't uncommon, but perhaps we're seeing slightly larger numbers. But the real news, Curtis, embrace yourself, locust swarms in East Africa. Locusts. So the swarms are gargantuan masses of tens of billions of flying bugs. They range anywhere from a square third of a mile to a hundred square miles or more of bugs, Curtis. (laughs) With 40 million to 80 million locusts Packed in a square mile, these things bulldoze pasture lands in dark clouds the size of football fields and small cities and eat everything. In northern Kenya, one swarm was reported to be 25 miles long by 37 miles wide, meaning it would blanket the city of Paris 24 times over. Um, I just put both my hands on the head. What? Like, this is, I know, you know, we're talking about murder hornets, but this is another level. So where is this happening? Swarms are most intense in East African countries, including Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia. But the Desert Locust Watch documents have been also showing that this is happening in Southwest Asia and in the Middle East. So Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Uganda, and Iran are also among those afflicted. If these swarms stay steady on their warpath, the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization says these locusts can pose a threat to the livelihoods of 10% of the world's population. 10% of the world will not be able to eat because their crops have been eaten 
by these locusts. So that's my, my update. And another thing that I, I wanted everybody to educate themselves on, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about, is, is what is happening in Yemen. I've dug real deep into what is happening, but I do think it's one of those things that you kind of have to read about for yourself and educate yourself because folks are dying at really, really high rates. It's crazy that um, we live in a world of so much abundance, yet people are dying of starvation en masse. It's unacceptable is what it is. Lots of folks who had opened up prematurely are closing back down. Germany uh, is reimposing lockdown restrictions after more than 1,500 people tested positive at a slaughterhouse. Uh, Florida had almost 5,000 new cases, as we talked about earlier in, t- in today's episode. Oh, no, they, they, had, they, they had almost 5,000, and then the next day they surpassed it. <laughs> oh, okay. There you go. Thank you, Chris. Like, they're just on a roll. And, you know, the World Health Organization, despite what Trump has to say about the World Health Organization, they are still here letting us know Wagwan. So the World Health Organization says the pandemic is still in its ascendancy, meaning the numbers are still going up. It's not slowing down. So I think that there's something to think about there. Like before we kind of get too excited and, you know, start opening up swimming pools and, you know, <laughs> things where there, there is no distancing involved. We, we, we have to remember the WHO says the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic is still in its ascendancy, not descendancy, ascendancy. Accordingly. Is the NBA a distraction? The NBA and sports more broadly want to restart in a time where we're trying to devote more attention to social chasms like anti-Black racism. Games would be on every night, interrupting the news cycle. It would once again be its own conversation. Think of all the people you know who know everything about ball, but nothing about human rights or equity. So if sport entertainment returns, do you think that'll harm the anti-Black racism movement? Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. Remember, we're all in this together, and this forum is meant to be a sort of safe space to foster community. So slide in our DMs with any questions or feedback you have, and we promise to respond. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at PatienceEve. And I'm on Instagram at State of Vermont. See you next time. You know, it's getting pretty wild out there. We've heard about shootings and other instances of violence all across the greater Toronto area. And we're urging people to please stay home. And if you can't, please continue to be vigilant and stay safe. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett, who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U. T-A-N-T-E for all your graphic design needs. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.